Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion team. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, Now, up to to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by one of the most versatile broadcasters in America today. It's called MLB, NFL, college football, basketball, golf, tennis, and to just say he did it in the 92 and 94 Olympics, he called Luge. Uh, he's currently <laughs> doing play-by-play for the Boston Red Sox. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean McDonough. Sean, thanks for coming on the program. Hey, my pleasure, my friend. It's great to see you, and uh, thanks for having me on. <clears throat> that was a mouthful. You've done it all. Uh, you've been playing any golf? We haven't, have, seen each other. Well. we haven't seen each other in how long? It's been 12 yeah, years. Yeah, I think it years. was back at the Ahmad Rashad Celebrity Golf Classic at Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. Mohegan And that Sun. had to be, gosh, 15 years ago, maybe? That had to be 15, because I was just barely retired, I think, when I, mm-hmm. when I did that, so... That was a fun um, time. You grew up in Boston. I, I I mentioned it in the opening. Luge, the Olympics. How much did you know about Luge before you did it? <laughs> it's a great question. The answer is zero. Um, you know, the first Olympics I did when I was at CBS was in 92. And I believe that was the first year of short track speed skating. And that was going to be my assignment. Then kind of at the last minute. They had a couple of changes in their announcer lineup, and they said to me, you're going to do the bobsled and luge. 
And I thought, okay. Um, so I actually went to Lake Placid, New York, which is where the U.S. bobsled luge teams train, and went up and met the people, had them kind of explain to me how the whole thing works. Actually went on a bobsled and luge run myself, which was stupid because I, I probably came pretty close to killing myself doing the luge. But um, but it did give you an appreciation of what it was like and you know how difficult it was. So. I really didn't know anything, but I had fun learning it and you know, had a lot of fun doing the bobsled luge commentary for uh, two Olympics, as you said earlier. I mean, you're probably on a short list of, of guys that are versatile in, in this industry. Um, is there something you wouldn't be comfortable calling? You know, yes, I'm sure uh, there are a few things. Um a couple of years ago, when we were doing the NHL All-Star game, the PR people at ESPN were putting on a press release. They asked me, how many different sports have you done on national TV? And I had to think about it and count it for a minute, and the answer was 11. And, um, but I, I do think it's really the same thing, Brett, right? As long as you know the rules, you know, play-by-play -play is the same skill. You're describing what you see, you're interacting with the analysts, you're putting captions on pictures hopefully telling stories, uh, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I think auto racing uh, would be something I'm, I'm not sure I'd be able to do. I don't know a lot about cars. Um, and once they all started and started going around the track, I I'm sure there are ways to tell who's ahead and who's not. But um, I'm not sure I'd be good at that. And I'm sure there are a number of other things that if I thought more about it, uh, I wouldn't be good at. But uh, the sports that I do know, you know, I feel comfortable doing it. Well, you know a lot. And, and just being on this side of the microphone for me in this brief period I have been the last few years, uh, it put me in a baseball atmosphere. It's simple. That's a layup for me. I can talk the game, anything you want to do. TV, I understand, is different than radio. Uh, radio, you got to kind of paint the picture a little bit more. But let's just take the three big sports, baseball, basketball, football. Is there a different tactic you take to each one or, or do you apply – Sean McDonough's just personality to all three. I mean, you've, you've done it so long now, but no, there is a difference in calling a baseball game versus a, a football game versus a, a basketball game. Yeah, very much so. You know, I used to say uh, football is probably the easiest to do on TV because there's just a natural rhythm and flow to it, right? I mean, when the play is being run, basically that's the play-by-play -play person's domain. You know, you're describing the play. And then when the play is over, usually you're just kind of out and let the uh, analyst come in. Oftentimes there's a replay. Um, and if there's not, nothing happens. And sometimes between plays, the play-by-play -play person might tell a story. Or a lot of times we're also doing business, you know, reading a promo or that sort of thing. So there's kind of a natural ebb and flow of who's supposed to talk when. Where in the, most of the other sports, there's not, you know, Baseball is totally different now, Brett, than it was last year or the uh, rest of my career prior to this year with, with the clock. You know, it uh, used to be a lot of times you were kind of struggling for something to say. Now you really have a struggle to get things in because the pitches are coming fast and furious. You might have a story you want to tell. You might want to have a little banter with your analyst, but there's no time especially, you know, on the radio where I do 25 Red Sox games uh, here in Boston, they're nice enough to let me come back and do that. And 
you know, they, we might have, a, we at least have one drop in in every inning. In some innings, we have two when you're doing the out-of-town scoreboard or whatever it is. So, you know, it used to be you're kind of thankful to have the drop-ins because it gave you a way to kill 15 or 20 seconds. Now they kind of get in the way because you know, the, the action is coming so fast. So they're all different in their own way. You know, I think of all the stuff I do right now, hockey's the hardest. You know, the, the pace of the game. Most of these arenas that we're in were really far away from the ice. We're kind of dangling from the ceiling. And, you know, the the ice surface might be five, six, seven stories below. You know, you get off the elevator to go to the booth on 10 and the arena level is on three. So, you know, that makes it hard. They're all challenging and different in their own way, but they're all fun too. Interesting you bring that up about <clears throat> from the broadcast side. Because when these rules are dropped, you know, and me, the baseball guy and and being asked all off season booney what do you think of the baseball rules well of course you know i'm a, i'm kind of a purist when it comes to the game i i like less change i don't, I don't like too many changes but at the same time i'm very open-minded to it i realize that the game's got to go forward it's 2023 this off season they gave me that clock and i thought the one thing baseball players we pride ourselves on is we're the only major sport that doesn't have a clock so I kind of took it in stride and say, I, I kind of don't like it out of, out of hand, but I'll have an open mind. I love the clock, Sean. I love <laughs> it because I was thinking at first, <clears throat> you know, I was thinking my brain went everywhere. It's like, well, how are they going to get the signs from the third base coach on time? But then I'm thinking, well, it's 2023. They don't even give signs anymore. So that's out. But I thought about the cat and mouse with the hitter and the batter. The only thing I don't like about the clock, and I think it can be tweaked in the future, is that eight-second engagement rule where the where the hitter's got to engage the pitcher at eight seconds. Now the pitcher can hold the ball on you. As a hitter, I I could always counter that by calling timeout. Well, I only have one timeout now. But other than that, I think the the new rule's been hard, but nobody ever brings into the equation, well, what about the in the broadcast booth? That's a change for them, too. Nobody ever thought about that. But it's interesting when you talk about now, I, I used to have to fill time with stories and you probably have stories written down. All right. If we have a downtime, this is a good story for this time in my life. Nobody ever thought about that. And it's really, it's really, you hit on a good point. Like I didn't even think about the broadcast booth and how much more of a swift pace you're going. Yeah, it's totally different. You know, how would Vin, was Vin key... Scully, what would he have done? Yeah, he'd be a totally different broadcaster, and I'm not sure that would be good, right? I mean, part of right. his greatness was his ability to tell a, a great story. You know, he was so well prepared, and he had people help him uh, do preparation as well. But, you know, that was a big part of his magic was he, you know, he had so many great stories about almost all the players. And I do miss that. I mean, I used to complain all the time the last many years about the pace of play. And, uh, you know, the, we had Red Sox pitchers who'd take 45 seconds or a minute between pitches. I mean, it just drive you crazy. And it's certainly not fan-friendly. I think it's a much better game now for the fan. I think it's a mm -hmm. much better game if you're sitting in the stands watching it or watching it on TV or even listening to it on the radio. But, you know, part of what I used to like about especially doing the games on the radio was you said you, you're kind of in control of the whole thing yourself because, you know, you're painting the pictures and you're deciding, you know, what order that you're saying things. On TV, uh, there's you don't have as much control because basically the producer and director are putting the pictures up and you're putting the captions <clears throat> on the pictures. Now, sometimes you can get on your talk back button to the truck and ask them for a particular shot of a player or the manager or whatever, but... 
I do miss the by play with the other people in the booth, you know, the ability to kind of uh, bust each other or, or tell a story. And, you know, you can't, you, you know, you can, but it's, you know, you're weaving it in between pitches because they're coming every 15 seconds or so. So you start to tell a story, then you have to call the pitch and then you kind of resume the story and then you call the pitch and the, where before you might have, as I said, 45 seconds or a minute with nothing happening. So it's totally different. You know, I wish there was kind of a happy medium from a broadcast standpoint, but I, I think it's a much better game now. I do. And I think, I'll, you know, I, the big picture is with the, with the two disengagements to first base, I think that the goal when they put these rules in was to encourage base running again to encourage a swift play. If you go back to the 70s, this is how the games were. That's how fast they went. Uh, but I think it's good to get the guys running again. You know, maybe that disengagement over the years is going to change. But right now, it's incentivizing people to steal bases. It's getting stealing bases back into baseball. And I, and I think that's good for the game. So all in all, I don't know. I'm kind of a fan of what they've done. And I'm not always a fan of, of rule changes, but but at this particular one, I think they hit a home run. Very, uh, but interesting perspective from the broadcast booth. Uh, I agree with you about the stolen bases. I'm glad to see that back too. You know, yeah, you know, you got uh, you got an Acuna going might steal 70 bases. When's the last time? We had, it was an afterthought. The guys right. just didn't steal bases. It wasn't important to them. And I think it's really cool moving the game. I don't think the catchers like it. Because no. the, the, the real astute base stealers still have that a huge advantage, but they'll find a way to, to, to kind of tweak that. Do you have a favorite? I, I would think for me, and, and I know you're you love the the you love playing golf, um, but that would be quite off the beaten path for what you, you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Do you have a favorite when it comes to any of the eleven that you mentioned? <laughs> well, you know, if you ask me this time of the year, I'd probably say college football. You know, it's as you know, being an all-around sports fan yourself, when I talk to your brother, a lot of times it's about the USC Trojans. Uh, his football. They're good. They're so, good, too, this year. They're really good. Yeah. They might even be great, so we'll, we'll see what happens. But, um, you know, they're, they're only playing whatever it is, 12 or 13 games. And so every one of them is important. Our group's lucky. We generally get one of the best games in the country every week. So, you know, we know the games that we're doing most of the time are going to be important. And... There's just such great atmosphere in most of these places, you know, the build up to the game during the week and just the vibe when you walk through the parking lot into the stadium and all the traditions that come with college football and pageantry. So, you know, this time of the year, I'd say that I love hockey. I mean, I grew up here in Boston in the heyday of Bobby Orr and the, and the Boston Bruins. And, you know, he was my first sports idol and uh, still is <clears throat> still the greatest hockey player I've ever seen. I know the, you know, I'm, I'm probably biased, but uh, love hockey. When we got the hockey back, ESPN and ABC a couple of years ago, and you know, I, I called Jimmy Pitaro, texted Jimmy Pitaro, the president of ESPN, said, I, I really want to do this. And thankfully, they gave me the opportunity. So to have the chance to do the Stanley Cup final, uh, that's been awesome. And then, you know, to your point about the golf, I, I'm a passionate golfer and I'm nowhere near as good as you, but I, I love it. As a matter of fact, it's funny, the when I got put on the golf, oh gosh, probably 2010 at ESPN, when we wound up getting all of the British Open, they needed more announcers. A couple of my golf buddies said, you know, they let you announce golf the way you play. And I said, well, 
They let me announce football. I'm not exactly Tom Brady. I mean, you know, exactly. it's not really a job requirement, but I guess it's worth pondering. You know, I, one of the things I don't do with golf commentary is try to suggest that, you know, this is how he or she should hit this shot because, uh, you know, that's why we have the real golfers on the broadcast to talk about that. But I love doing it. It's a challenge in and of its own way because when they come to you, you never know. You know, a lot of golf comment, a lot of golf TV is on tape because, you know, it's going on in 18 holes in, in different places with all, all within those 18 holes all at the same time. So there's no way you could show everything simultaneously, you know, everything live. It's impossible. So a lot of it's on tape. And because it's so fast, you know, they don't always have the time to warn you that they're coming to you. So you constantly have to be paying attention to what's happening on the holes that you're covering and just know, OK, you know, Brett Boone just chipped one in on 16. That's my hole. They're probably that's what I know. That you know, tape. you've seen you've seen that so much. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you get you, you really kind of have to pay attention. Um to what's going on, which is part of the, the fun part of it. One of the bummers, the only negative for me doing the hockey is when they moved the PGA Championship from August to May. You know, before it was in August and I had nothing else going on and it was I was able to do it with our great ESPN group. But uh, now that it's in May, it's right in the middle of the Stanley Cup playoffs. So I haven't been able to do the PGA Championship the last couple of years and I really miss it. And I would think too, with the other sports you mentioned, you know, you don't know what it's like to be a football player. Uh, most broadcasters, especially at the top level, um, have never been in the box against a, a Jacob Degrom. Right. But you've been in in that awkward position with a with a sixty degree wedge, and you know how tough it can be. So I think that'd be kind of cool because golf is the one sport, if I can call it a sport, that everybody can relate to. Ex-baseball players, ex-football players, broadcasters, guys that didn't play sports because everybody plays golf. So you always know what that when, when somebody shanks a ball, you know what that is. You know, when someone blocks a ball into the woods, you know what that is. So I think that that would be cool. Yeah. I, and everybody knows the pressure in their own way. Right. Even if it's right. Little, right. Ten dollar Nassau and your yeah. ten dollar Nassau, whatever. You know, and, and I think all of us, you know, amateur golfers, you know, country club hackers are, uh, you know, we you still know that, you know, when you're short-sighted and, the, you know, the, the, the holes 10 feet off the edge of the green, you got to flop it over a bunker and try to stop it. You know, we know that's hard even for great pros, right? So um, one of the things that I, I benefit from a little bit too, Brett, is just uh, I belong at a place called Whisper Rock out in Scottsdale. And we have about 30 pros uh, who play there. And from time to time, I get to play with them, watch them practice or whatever. And, uh, you know, you, you, you do get an appreciation up close of just how great they are. And, uh, and even the differences, you know, between them, right? They're, they're my, you know, John Rahm is at Whisper Rock. You know, he's better than a lot of the other pros who are there, obviously, probably all of them. And they're all great, but even, you know, in the PGA Tour, there's there's levels, right? Just like there might be at, yeah. where you play golf, you know, there's scratch golfers and there's five handicappers and there's right. a difference between that too. There's not that wide a spread among the pros, obviously, or they wouldn't be on the PGA Tour. But, uh, yeah, I love doing the golf and, uh, and I, I wish we had more of it. I, when I was going over your resume and I was looking at it, I think, man, McDonough does everything like you're doing football now and you're going to go into hockey soon. I think, how does he keep it all together? But then it dawned on me, 
that's got to be pretty cool for you because unlike us who, you know, I played baseball and what do I do? I play, go to spring training and I play 162 games. If we have a good year, I get to go to the postseason this year and I play. And those years where we don't go to the postseason, that's a long 162 games. And I just want to go off in the sunset for you, probably in the broadcast booth, doing something for a long time. You're kind of welcoming, especially this year in Boston, Hasn't been one of the better years. They're still above 500 in a real tough division, but not go. Doesn't look like they're going anywhere. And to be up oh, well, now, it's football time. I can kind of move on. <laughs> it, it's kind of a cool thing, I think. Yeah, it, it's great. It, you know, as you know, because the baseball season is so long, and you've experienced it your whole life. You know, a lot of baseball broadcasters. That's all they do because it's such a grind that when the season's over, um, you know, they just want to take it easy and not travel and. So, but I always, you know, growing up knowing that this is what I wanted to do probably when I was five or six years old, you know, I, I grew up a all-around sports fan. My dad was a sports writer. I was, you know, going around all the different games with him. So I, I, I loved the variety. You know, I've always wanted to do as many different sports as I can. And to me, that's part of the fun. But you do get to your point where, you know, when the football, the baseball season's coming to the end, you're kind of ready to get on to something else. And I'll be the same way at the end of the college football season too. You know, preparing for college football is a real grind. I mean, there's, it's like studying for a test every week because, you know, there's, there's going to be 70 some odd guys, 80 guys who may dress for each team. And, you know, you, probably 60 of them have a chance of getting in the game. And you really have to know something about all of them, really, if you're preparing as well as you should. So, uh, and it's every week you're on Zooms with the coaches or you're meeting with them in person. You're meeting with the players, the offense coordinator, defensive coordinator. Uh, you're trying to read as much as you can. You're watching tapes of the previous games that they've played. You're talking to people who cover them to, to get some insights. So it's a, it's a week-long prep. So usually by the time college football is over, I'm kind of ready to, to move on to the next thing. You know, there is some overlap with the hockey uh, hockey starts in a month, which is hard to believe, less than a month. And uh, But ESPN is great to me. They really don't have me do many games in uh, October, November, December while college football is still going on. So I, I don't have as much overlap as some other people. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, on the baseball side, you've had some great partners, Joe Castiglione currently, uh, Jerry Remy, um, you had for years and years. Is there a challenge for you going sports? You've had, I'm, I can't even imagine how many partners in the booth you've had over the years. Can that be a challenge at times? Oh sure, yeah. Guys, and I know guys you sync number, with? It's a great question. The rough number is about 160. Um, I keep a list. I wish I had known we were going to talk about that. I would have brought it up for you, read you some of the names, but. Uh, I've kept a list of all the different analysts, you know, including luge analysts and bobsled analysts and all you know, those luge football. luge analysts are. Oh you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, John Fee was our luge analyst, and uh, and Bonnie Warner, and John Morgan was our bobsled analyst. So I still keep in touch with. He's still up in Lake Placid and a real character, and uh, it was fun to get to know them when we were over in Albertville and in uh, Lillehammer. But uh, it is difficult. In in all honesty. Um, I'm going through it right now. Over the last five years, I worked with Todd Blackledge on college football, and uh, he left for you know a great opportunity at NBC, you know. And um, so I'm working with Greg McElroy, and as you and I are speaking, we've done two games together, and it's just different. It's different for both of us, you know. The, he had worked with Joe Tessitore the last couple of years, and you know everybody's cadence and pacing and timing and the way they like to do things is different. So I'm getting used to Greg's. So he's getting used to mine. Right. Uh, the good thing is he's a great guy. You know, I've been lucky of the 160 people. Uh, I don't even think there's a handful that I didn't like. You know, most of them became some of my, a lot of them become some of my closest friends. You know, guys like Jay Billis and Bill Raftery. And you mentioned Jerry Remy, who uh, we, we miss a lot here uh, in Boston. We just uh, lost him to cancer a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, so... When you work with somebody you really like and there is great chemistry, it's uh, it's the most fun. And I've been lucky that it, it's rare where you just work with somebody and think, wow, this this just isn't fun. Yeah, and I, I was going to – well, you kind of answered the question, but I was going to say you got to have guys. And I know over the years where you get your assignment and you go, son of a bitch, I don't want to work <laughs> with that clown. <laughs> but you said it's a small list. It's like a, everything we do, you know. You get asked about teammates. I had so many teammates over the years, and and it's amazing when fans come and say, oh, yeah. And I said, you know, at the end of the day, I played with a lot of guys on a lot of teams. Pretty, The guys are pretty much good guys. You know, yeah. there's not too many guys that I had a problem. Like, like you, there's a hand. I can if, if you put a gun to my head, I can name five guys, but it's really not more than that that I didn't come mind going to work and, and going to battle with from seven to 10 every night. It's like most of the guys are pretty good guys. And, and there are challenges to you. Like, like you said, you're, you're working with a new partner. It's not sure. that it's going to be, it's not going to be a great relationship. It just takes time like anything else to get used to one another's your, your idiosyncrasies. Right. You know, everybody has a different way of preparing, different way they like to do the meetings, different way they like to, you know, we show for the game, the football game, two hours or so ahead of time. Everybody has their routines, the way they want to do things. And, you know, some of the analysts like to go down the field before the game, some don't. You know, it's, it's a whole different, uh, it's just learning it. But, you know, 
Greg McElroy, one thing I already knew, because I've known Greg for a while, is that he's a great guy. You know, when they told me uh, they were going to put him with me, I thought, well, that's great, because he's a, he's a super nice guy. And he's really good. You know, it's just different, you know. And, and right. you know, I, I think I was spoiled, because Greg even says this, you know, Todd Blackledge, to me, is about as good as, as any analyst, uh, certainly as good as anyone in college football. And I'm trying to think who I think is better in any other sports. I mean, he's just as top shelf as they come. And Greg himself has said, you know, Todd's kind of the gold standard for him. So uh, it's different. And, um, you know, everybody has to make their own decisions. I know it was hard for Todd to leave ESPN. He was there for 20 plus years, basically worked with the same crew the entire time. He loved them. They loved him. But, you know, part of it is the financial part of it, right? And if someone makes you a better offer, you got to ponder if that's what you want to do. And I'm really happy for him because he deserves it. But, you know, to your point about teammates, it's, it's the same thing. Uh, for us, right? You, the people you work with on the crew, th- those are your teammates, the producer, the director, yeah. the technicians, you know, the audio people. The audio people are super important for us. Um, and I'm really blessed in our college football group that I think we have the, you know, the best guys in the business working with us every Saturday. But it really is a team. And uh, so, you know, when I worked with Raftery and Billis, we were doing the big Monday in the Big East and then the ACC every Monday. And I looked forward to it because you were going to hang around with your buddies, right? And when you probably played on teams that had great chemistry, you kind of looked forward to getting to the park because you knew you were going to have some fun right. busting on each other and getting ready for the game, going out and competing together toward the same goal. So, yeah, it's uh, we don't have the same objective standard. I'm a really competitive person, and I think one of the things that frustrates people, ex-players or, or ex-coaches, managers, when they come into broadcasting is – there's not the adrenaline flow of the winning and losing, right? There's not the, you know, the highs and lows, you know, you, when you finish broadcasting a game, you know, you kind of know, okay, we were good. We were great. We were, we didn't have such a good night, but there's no objective standard really. And I think a lot of athletes and coaches really miss that when they get into TV. Yeah, you're, you're right. That's an interesting point. Cause it's, I know right away at the end of a game, whether I was a non-factor I helped us lose <laughs> or I was a star today, baby. It's pretty obvious. And the numbers will tell you that. But on this side of the, the ledger, it, it is true. I can walk away from our podcast today and go, that was a good podcast. I know enough. Now I've done enough now where I get up and I'll go, that was great. I'll yeah. get up and say that was solid. And then uh, very rarely, but I'll get up. Oh, man, that wasn't that great. But I, I got another one I got to do tomorrow. But you're right. It's it's not an object, but it's a feeling you have. You know, after calling a game, and it could have been an exciting game, came down to the wire, whether it's baseball, football, high, whatever it is. You probably get up at the end of that booth, shake your partner's hand and go, that was a good broadcast. right? Well, you know what? And you know. It's interesting. <clears throat> and you kind of touched on it on, on uh, the way by. The... I've had so many times where I thought, wow, you know, like I just had one of these days where every sentence came out and it was well phrased and the stories were good. They were well timed. You said something funny and you made an astute point at a particular part of the game, you know, that turned out to be important or whatever. But if the game's a dog, I, I have done a lot of games where it was a great game. And I thought, oh, I was just okay. Boy, I was kind of off today or whatever. And I get more text messages, phenomenal job today. You were great. And I know, no, I wasn't, you know, but the game I'm was glad, great. I'm, so, I'm glad you think it was. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know what? And I'm, I was thinking as you were talking about your experience on this podcast, right? 
there can be times when you were probably terrific and you asked a lot of great questions and you were interesting and funny. But if the guest is a dud, you know, there's only so much you could do. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's sort of the way I feel about doing games. You know, there are times we could be great, but the, and that's really the important part about the preparation that we're talking about the football. It's really the guard against the boring game where, okay, it's 42 to 10. We can't keep saying first and 10, second and five. That was a good catch. You know, people, you got to give them something else. So start telling hopefully interesting stories about the players, the coaches, the team, uh, whatever it might be to, to keep people involved. Yeah. And, and as, as all sports fans, you know, as we watch a game and, and especially, and I, and I'm getting better at it, but man, when you're a max ex baseball player, you're tough on those baseball announcers, you know, you're <laughs> listening and you're yelling at the TV. You don't even know what you're talking, right. but I take a step back now being on this side of the ledger and go, you know, it's really tough to call a game and be great every day. I mm-hmm. couldn't imagine, you know, if I've got to do, if, if me and Sean McDonough have to do 20 days in a row, we've got to do interviews and talk, man, are we going to talk about the same stuff? I mean, it's, it's not easy when you go back to back to back. So I, I, in my older age, Sean, I, I'm getting a little, I, I'm, I'm softening up a little bit. And I'm not well, sorry. we appreciate that, you know, <laughs> but we're just like players, coaches, officials, whatever, you know, we have real lives. You know, sometimes you have stuff going on in your life that might affect your ability to concentrate when you're in the booth or whatever. You know, it's uh, it's real life. We're not robots, just like the players aren't robots. And you know, I think, you know, to use your word, you know, I've definitely softened over the years. You know, I used to be probably more, I don't want to say critical, but you're more likely to jump on something that wasn't good. You know, now you kind of realize, you know what, we're all human beings. So. And it's uh, hard. Most of them are out there trying the best they can. And uh, so hopefully it makes you a better broadcaster as time goes along. And you have a little more empathy for uh, the people who are involved because, you know, we're not we're not good every night. We're certainly not great every night. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of nights when you're doing it thinking, my God, come on, you know, <laughs> get your head out yeah. of your rear end here and uh, start doing a better job announcing this game. What makes a great color, man? Um, another great question. I think, uh, knowledge, obviously, um, you know, and and the ability to express it. And then I think, you know, on TV, you know, one of the things, um, that I admired about Tim McCarver and Jerry Remy and, you know, the best baseball analyst that I've worked with your brother, um, Aaron, um, who I would put right in that same category, really, he was tremendous analyst. And, and to, to our earlier conversation about, as you know, I mean, I've been blessed to become your brother's friend. You know, he's a he's a great guy. And uh, well, as a matter of fact, he'll, he's in town here in Boston this week. But the uh, but the um, you know, it's I think it's the knowledge of the game. You know, some people have all the knowledge in the world. They're just not very good at expressing it. And I, and I think part of that is understanding the medium of television. You know, that's something that Jerry Remy really got better at over the years you know it's not it's one thing to talk about the game it's another thing to use tv um whether it's replays or whatever to kind of pass that knowledge along to the viewer so and then i think you know especially in baseball where even with the speeded up clock now it still is a little more conversational and on tv you can still do that because if if the play-by-play guy doesn't call every pitch it doesn't matter i can see it right so but on the radio 
you know, the one thing you can't do on the radio is say uh, 2-0 and on Brett Boone. When, well, well, wait a minute, but I didn't hear anything about ball one or ball two. So, you know, you, you can't. So you have to at least interrupt the conversation to talk about what's happening and, and then go back to your story. So, you know, I, I think guys like, like Jerry Remy, you know, a big part of his popularity here in New England and really around the world, <clears throat> people who watch Red Sox games all over the place now is just – his personality, you know, his, um, he and I had great chemistry and had a lot of laughs. And then when he started working with Don Orsolo, it was the same thing. When you're a baseball announcer, you know, most of them are on every night. And I think that's one of the reasons why the most popular broadcasters have typically been the baseball announcers, because you feel like you know them. And, they, they, and because they have all that time, they are telling stories and they are kind of revealing a little bit about themselves. So, I mean, if, if you think about who are the most popular broadcasters of our lifetime, Vin Scully, Ernie Harwell, Jack Buck, Harry Carey, you know, it's uh, not that the local guys in other sports aren't really popular too, but I think by and large, the, the baseball announcers are the most popular because you feel like you know them. I'm sure you've talked at length with Aaron about this, but us growing up in Philadelphia, Harry Callis, I can still hear, mm-hmm. I can still hear his voice. Because, you know, a lot of our, our fondest memories, at least mine are, you know, I, I, I was fortunate enough to play this game at a high level for a long time. But some of my fondest memories are from my childhood and going mm-hmm. to the vet and hanging out with dad and listening to Harry Callis. That's 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 my childhood. Mm-hmm. That's Harry Callis on the mic. And, you know, Pete at first and and Bull in left field, and Gary Maddox in center field, Manny Trio playing second base. That was the guy I went to. I helped him paint his glove because that's what I was going to be a second baseman. <laughs> so you're right, though. You're right. It's it's uh, pretty pretty cool stuff. You mentioned you knew you were going to do this. You wanted to do this since five years old. And, and we're going to get to dad in a second. But you went to Syracuse. I went to USC. I went to USC not to study. I went to USC and I went to my counselor and I said, what, should, what do I need to take and what do I need to to have to stay eligible to be on the field because I'm here to play baseball and I'm going to go play in the big leagues for 15 years. And that's just the way it's going to be. That was truly how I thought, John. I had no idea what was about to hit me at the highest level. And believe me, I had my share of humble pie. I got my butt knocked down and uh, it it was the best thing for me because I learned. I grew up, I grew as a person, but I grew as a big leaguer. And, and, uh, you know, I watch young players today and I do that. For you, you went to Syracuse, you graduate, 1985, you're calling games for the Red Sox. Your office is Fenway Park. Is that how you envision it? Because I knew when I was in the big leagues, I got there for the first day. I thought, of course I'm here. This is part of the plan. This is what I've been telling you for years. Naive, but it was really how my brain thought. When you were there in 85, got that gig, did you look around and go, well, I know I wanted to do this. This is pretty cool. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, when I got there in 85, I was still doing kind of like the pregame, postgame, on the field, postgame interview. And then in 88, uh, when I got named the TV play-by-play announcer, that's when I had that moment. I, I mean, I can still picture it. They were, I was at Fenway Park on opening day. You know, they have all the bunting and all the stuff that comes with opening day. They were playing the Detroit Tigers when they had Alan Trammell and those guys. And... Um, I remember sitting in the broadcast booth, you know, this is something I had been dreaming of since I was five or six years old. When I, like you, I mean, my dad was a sports writer. You grew up around it. 
I'm sure that's why you want to be a major league player because you grew up around it. You know, I grew up around it, knew I was never going to be good enough to be a major league player. So, you know, this was an opportunity. And, and I used to sit in the back of the broadcast booth at spring training when my dad would take us down to Winter Haven, Florida, where the Red Sox trained at the time. And Ned Martin and Ken Coleman and the guys who were the announcers then, um, who were still announcing when I got to the Red Sox TV booth, um, you know, they were nice enough to let me sit in the back of the booth and watch. And I remember thinking then, I want to do this. So when I got to opening day in 1988, literally, you know, I, I was almost paralyzed for a couple of minutes thinking like, I actually have this job. So, uh, you know, it was a dream come true. It's really all that uh, I wanted to do when I was a kid. And that that kind of gave me the opportunity to do all these things on the network level. You know, I was really lucky. So much of it is just good fortune, right? ESPN's in Bristol, Connecticut. ESPN was kind of just, you know, it'd only been around a little bit when I started doing the Red Sox games. Well, the Red Sox games, because Connecticut's in New England, are on in Connecticut. So the people at ESPN would come home and watch the Red Sox game. And apparently a couple of them thought, he's pretty good. So that's how I got into ESPN. You know, if I was doing the Minnesota Twins games, those people probably wouldn't have seen me and maybe I never would have had the opportunity at ESPN. So a lot of it is just the right place at the right time. How was that growing up? Your, your dad, Will McDonough, um, <clears throat> famous Boston Globe uh, sports writer. He did on-air football at NBC and CBS. Uh, your dad and Peter Gammons kind of were were they the original? That yeah, they were the first sports writer to. They, yeah, they were, and it was by accident, really. You know, my dad didn't have any interest in being a TV person, and then uh, Brent Musburger on the old NFL Today, Ted Shaker, who was the executive producer of CBS Sports, they invited my dad on to be a guest down in New York on a Sunday. About I don't remember what the topic was, and but Brent told me the story that my dad was sitting there, and you know he was giving them all this other information about. You know, by the way, that quarterback's not going to play today. He's hurt, you know, blah, blah, blah. If that team loses, they're probably going to fire the coach. Blah, blah. And Brent said, you know, this guy knows a lot. Maybe we should have him back. So it kind of accidentally became a recurring thing. And then they made him, you know, the, the really the first information man uh, in TV. And over the years, I've had a lot, you know, Peter King and Adam Schefter and Chris Mortensen and guys like that tell me, you know, Thank God for your dad, because, you know, he's the one who kind of opened the door for this. And, um, you know, my dad really only did it. I was the oldest of five, and that was right around when he was going on TV. I was in high school, uh, and, you know, the first of five were about to go to college. So uh, sports writers didn't make a lot back then. So he, he really, he was very open. I say, I'm just doing this for the money. <laughs> I have no ego about thinking I'm good on TV. I really don't want to be on TV. It's nothing I ever really aspired for. It happened by accident. But... You know, he opened the door for a lot of people, and uh, he was just a great guy. You know, it's uh, that's the thing I'm proudest of. You know, he, he just – I still – my dad's been gone for 20 years now, and every single day uh, I go somewhere and someone comes up and tells me a story about they ran into my dad, they played golf with my dad, and, and how nice he was, and some random act of kindness that he did for somebody, uh, which I heard a lot of those stories after he died. So – it's a really cool thing to be able to say your dad is, you know, the finest man that you've ever known. And, and my dad was. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I remember teasing, we had Gammons on the program and teasing him. I said, Peter, you don't strike me as the guy that just goes from sports writer to 
throw you in the in the chair and you got to put some makeup on now you got to go on tv and he was laughing about that but it really was your dad and, and peter were kind of pioneers from the sports writer turned tv personality entertainer and, and peter uh, king said that to me he said you know what if, if they tried it with your dad it didn't work like he wasn't good at it they might have said you know what we tried that didn't work not a yeah. good idea and who knows maybe that whole concept would have gone away so i think the fact that my dad, guys like Peter, who were there at the beginning too, were were good at it. You know, brought something to the table, and and now, as you know, I mean, gave everybody else business. a chance. These guys make a ton of money. You know, what I mean, yeah, Shefty, Woj on our basketball coverage. I mean, these guys are valuable in, in a lot of ways. You know, um, but as much as anything, you know, they drive people to the websites and you know the other places where if you really want to get scoops. You know, these guys are, you know, back in my dad's day when he was breaking all kinds of big stories and that's what he was best known for. You know, he might know something at four o'clock in the afternoon. Brett Boone's going to announce his retirement tomorrow. I have a scoop. But it didn't come out until the paper came right, out. Right, right, right. The next morning, right? There wasn't Twitter. There wasn't all this other stuff. So websites and, you know, I remember thinking, well, that's this is like 12 hours till someone else gets my dad's scoop if they're smart enough to get it. So. You know, now if you have a scoop, you better tweet it out there in 30 seconds because somebody else is going to have it. And everybody yep. claims now to be first. You know, we had it up there a minute and 12 seconds before the athletic had it or whatever. So, right. And now everybody has to attribute, you know, on the bottom line or whatever. Right, right. They, they, say, they give credit. It's reported by the right. athletic. Like, you know, it's so it's kind of silly, but it's the world we live in. When we talk about family, and it's cool talk, hearing you talk about your dad like that. Because, you know, my family, I'm, I'm very close with all of them. Gramps passed away uh, almost 20 years ago. Big part of my life. Yeah. And and I still to this day, you know, I'll see older gentlemen in the game of baseball. And they'll, oh, you're grandpa, man. And I said, I know. I got to, I got to spend 34 years with him. So that was, I feel fortunate now looking back on those times. But I remember coming up college minor leagues and i just did an interview about this recently and they they talked about you know because i'm 54 years old now being a third generation that's just part of my life and till the day i die they're going to ask me what is it like and i understand that and i've accepted it when i was a kid i thought it was cool i was very proud of my father i was very proud of my grandfather but when i was trying to make it i i kind of started to resent it to a point, you know, I'd be in AAA and hitting 330 and I go to a new city. And the first question is, well, do you feel a lot of pressure to be the first third generation? And, and after a while, I said, I'm hitting 330. <laughs> I'm second in the league and hit. Let's talk about that. And I don't care about my dad and my grandfather, even though I love them to death and respect them as much as anybody I, I could respect. Uh, it took me a time. It took me a couple of years in the big leagues before the question started to be about Brett and what he was doing. Now I look back on it. There, there was never any bad feelings. It was just kind of, man, quit talking about it. I, I don't care what my dad and my grandpa did. Did you have any of that when you were young coming up feeling that or was it? Oh yeah. All yeah. the time. <clears throat> you know, especially when I got the Red Sox TV job at a young age, you know, my dad was writing for the globe, uh, the headline in the Boston Herald, which was a big competitor then um, was uh, when they announced that I was going to be the TV play-by-play -play guy. 
the headline was where there's a will there's a way <laughs> oh that's pretty good that's, yeah, pretty cute. that's, nice that's cute that's cute yeah it was very cute <laughs> um you know i wanted to say you know i've done 400 minor league baseball games which is probably a lot more than a lot of guys who are broadcasting the major leagues uh, have done you know the nice thing jim baker who was the tv writer in there at the herald at the time at that opening day game, you know, uh, the Alan Trammell, Alan Trammell wound up hitting a home run in extra innings off Lee Smith to win the game. And, and I actually learned, of, you know, you're always learning, right? And I remember uh, being in the post office, it might have been the next day, and uh, a guy recognized me. He said, Are you the McDonough guy who did the game yesterday? I said, yes. He said, you did a good job. He said, but you were too excited when the other team hit the home run to take the lead in the 10th inning. And it was a good you know, it's, it's, you're on the local broadcast. I mean, obviously, right. it's a big play. You want to give it, you know, it's proper due. But, uh, you know, you don't really have to get super excited when it's the other team. And that was a really, you know, that has obviously is still stuck with me all these years later. So, yeah, I used to get that a lot. You know, he only got that job because of uh, his dad or whatever. And I think, you know, your, my dad probably helped open the door to Nesson. You know, when I started at Nesson doing the pregame show, as I mentioned, and, in 85 and doing uh, college hockey and some other college sports, they were on in 3,000 homes total. I mean, you don't have to go very far around where you live or I live to get 3,000 homes. They weren't all over New England like they are now. And for a while, there was some speculation that they, they might go out of business. So, you know, I think they were looking for young guys, who were women who would, you know, work for not very much money. And, you know, when you're coming right out of school, you just want that first opportunity because that's always the hardest one to get. But um, you know, hopefully now, you know, people think I've made my way on my own or not. You know, I think, I think, I Joe think, you, Buck, I, I think you might have. <laughs> yeah, I think Joe Buck's one of the great broadcasters of all time. You know, obviously Jack, uh, you know, helped him along the way. You, you know, we mentioned Todd Blackledge earlier. He's working with Noah Eagle now as Ian Eagle's son. Ian's one of the greats in our business and a great guy. Noah, I think, is 25 years old. He's terrific. You know, he's worthy of the opportunity. Maybe being Ian's son helped them get there faster or whatever. But, you know, these people don't want to, you know, Dan Burkery, who hired me to do the Red Sox games when I was 25, he said to me, I almost didn't hire you because he said, I don't really know your dad very well. He's certainly not my buddy or anything. And this is the most important thing on our station. It's the high, Red Sox baseball is the highest rated programming. It's the biggest revenue generator. We pay a lot of money, the rights fees. I don't care whose kid you are. Like this is important for my livelihood. You know, if I want to keep my job, this has to go well. So I'm not putting anybody on just because he's somebody's kid. So, but you know, that was the narrative. But you know, it's uh, I don't care. I love my dad, and uh, you know, <laughs> if people have a problem with the, the path to however I got where I got, they can have a problem with it. A few times in my, especially in my uh, professional career. Dad would come in and give me some advice. He was right every time. I, I, I count it. It's like four times he gave me at at Forks in the Road, you know, during my career. He gave me advice. I took three of them. I didn't take one. He was right all four times. Biggest piece of advice Will McDonough gave gave you as your father. Oh, boy. Um, I, I think, you know, there's so much of it, you know, in the professional aspect of it and in real life. I think the most important thing is uh, because he was this way. I mean, he was the most true to himself person, right? He, I mean, he wrote the way he thought he should write. He didn't care if he ruffled feathers, but he always wanted to try to be fair. 
always worked super hard. I mean, I think the hard work and preparation part is, you know, he got all these scoops because he, he worked really hard at it and he cultivated relationships. He used to say, you know, like, it's okay if you're going to say something critical, but, you know, you should say why. You shouldn't just be a bomb tosser. You, know? you shouldn't right. say, you know, this guy stinks. I, you know, it's, and I would never say that anyway, you know, but I think if you're doing the game and it's obvious the fly ball should have been caught and it wasn't, you know, it doesn't do your own credibility any good. And it certainly doesn't serve the viewer. So, oh, you know, that was really a tough play when everybody watching is like, no, yeah. it you, you know, lose credibility. Yeah. You, you lose your credibility. And a matter of fact, the beginning years when the uh, Yaki foundation, this is Yaki on the team and John Harrington was running the team. They, you know, people would say to me, do they have a problem with your candor? You know, and I said, no, um, they don't. And, and John Harrington said this to me himself. He said, because now when you say something, you know, maybe we're taking a lot of grief from people about something and you defend us, it has credibility because people know you're not afraid to say, well, they right. kind of messed up. that was a bad trade or whatever. They shouldn't have fired the manager or whatever. So, um, you know, I, I think smart ownership groups realize that, you know, if your announcers are allowed to be honest, it really helps you. Unfortunately, not every ownership group in sports understands that. And there have been plenty of people who have been moved along because perhaps they were a little too candid. So, yeah, it's part of it. But, uh, you know, my dad gave me so much great advice, um, really, as I said, about, you know, professional life, but also just how to how to conduct yourself, you know, mm -hmm. try to try to be nice to people. <laughs> my dad used to say, I guess we're on a podcast that we can say this. My dad used to say, uh, it's the easiest thing in the world to be nice. It takes energy to be a prick. <laughs> yeah. No, it's yeah. true. Um, yeah. And he's right, you know. So um, it's, it's words to live by. Some of my – everybody assumes that, that my life was full of tutelage from my dad on how to hit and how to – he didn't teach me one thing about baseball. That was self-taught. That was repetition. What he taught me was how to be a pro when I got there and, and how to carry myself. I, that's the one thing as a little kid, you know, I, I saw a lot as a little kid. I grew up in clubhouses and I look back and I go, man, dad was a pro, you know, and those are the things that, that help you not only as in your profession, but in life to be a man. And, uh, right. Some of the greatest advice isn't, Hey Brett, you know, and that one, two count, what are you thinking? Yeah, that, that's, that's root of, that's elementary stuff. We all can break that down, but it, it was the times where I got sent to the minor leagues early and I'm bitching and moaning and my dad's on the other end, uh, just retired from, from baseball going, are you done? I go, what are you talking about? They're not treating me well, dad. He goes, well, as soon as you figure that you, you figure it out, that life ain't fair, you're going to be a lot better off, buddy. All you can control is what you can control. So whether you should be sent down right now for the third time in your rookie year, it doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what you do about it. So I'd suggest going down and knocking the shit out of the baseball. Right. And make make them call you back up. Things like that. Advice like that from my dad. When I'm just this out of control 22-year-old kid thinking the world is just against me because Lou sent me down again. And my dad being that calm voice to say, Okay, are you done being a baby? Okay, who cares? Are, are, now, if you yell loud enough, are they going to unsend you down, Brett? And I'd say, no. <laughs> you know, I remember on draft day, I was a fifth-round pick, and a bitch out there, they draft me in the fifth round. I'm a first-round pick. Are you done, Brett? 
You think they're going to redo the draft and draft you in the first round now because you're not happy? So oh, there are yeah. teams that wish they took you in the first round. Yeah, but but that those are those are the things that when you mention your dad and telling him this, the the real life stories and and that advice, it hit it hits home with me because it wasn't about on the field stuff. It was about life stuff. And, yeah. and that's well, and I'm cool. sure you know you you talked about it. You know, being asked about it when you were on your way up and even after you arrived. The, but I would think. Um, it's got to be really cool uh, for you, your dad, uh, your brother, and, and your granddad uh, while he was still with us. So, you know, I mean, that's you're one of the greatest families in the history of baseball. I mean, that's the reality. You know, you're doing things that people that haven't been done. You know, and you you're all you're all you know, you didn't just make it. You know, you were all performers at a high level. So. Uh, I, I would have to think that's something that uh, is really cool about your life experience, you know, and, and uh, it, it, it is cool. And I look and at to it, know it, the way they were all held and are held in higher. You know, I, I've heard a lot of stories about your grandfather, who I never really had the pleasure of knowing. You know, I, I know your dad, as I said, your brother's a dear friend. I know you, you know, it's uh, it would be one great, you know, one thing if you all had made it, but you know, you weren't held in the regard that you are, you know, to, right. to be able to know that people think the world of your brother, your dad, your grandfather, you, you know, it's, that's gonna, I think be the best part of the whole thing. You know, I, we talk about my dad, you know, my goal every day, I have a little, uh, I want one of my dad's baseball cards. And when I go to do a game, I put it right on the monitor in front of me so that from time to time I'm looking at him because you know, the, the thing I want more than, in, than anything in my life is to make him proud still. You know, he's up there watching. And, then, you know, you, you start to feel like, oh, I'm about to say something that's stupid or schmucky or whatever. You know, I, I'm, I'm not because, you know, I owe it to that man to, uh, you know, be the kind of person and broadcaster that he would want me to be. So, you know, it's a tradition to uphold and um, you guys do it exceedingly well. Thank you. And yeah, it's, I it's, love your brother. I mean, I really do. As you know, he, he's Arnie is he's, he's, he's such a good kid, smart, yeah. passionate as all get out. I laugh, you know, I watch him on TV and I crack up. People ask me about Aaron. I said, when he goes on one of his tirades and is yeah. arguing with the umpire, he doesn't mean anything by it because you know him as a guy. He's such oh. a well. How his many first thing he read his quote like the next day where he said, "Oh, I feel bad," or "I was right." I didn't he sure. calls me and tells me he feels bad, and I know he does because yeah. I know Aaron goes out there. The last thing he wants to do is cuss. Right. He doesn't want any kids in the stands to see anything bad. He doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But then the passion takes over. This last one when he was. When he, when he was drawing lines, I pictured him, and I've told it. Yeah, it's I, one of the great things, you know, as you know too. And I don't know if you can do it like he can, but the and you talk about growing up in the clubhouse. That I'm a little more poised than him, Sean. Batting stances and no, you know, I can't do that. The way people he used to imitate the way I walk. We we be walking into a stadium, you know, we were working with Rick Sutcliffe, and all of a sudden, you know, I, I don't have the greatest posture and kind of shuffle along. He'd start walking like me, and I'm like. Is my posture really that bad? No, it's a, but I like it must be because he's he does the most perfect imitations of people I've ever seen in my life. That's what he's done. That's Aaron. He's done that his yeah. whole life, and uh, you know I just I laugh and and he called me right after the recent one and I just I'm cracking up and he knows I'm laughing because that was Aaron in our childhood when we were playing two hand touch football on the road. And I said, it's not a first down, but he was going to argue to the death that it was. 
And that that's exactly how he'd come at me. So when I watch that on TV, I start laughing. I go, that's Aaron Boone when he was eight years old. He's the same yeah. kid. He's he loved super competitive. Play. I played golf with him many times. And, you know, he's uh, he's super competitive. And I think that's part of what makes somebody a great athlete, too. You know, it's uh, as I said, it's kind of part of I have two brothers who went into the, the you know management side uh, working for teams in uh, the NBA and the NFL. And I kind of envied them from time to time because there is the, the winning and losing and the scoreboard and the exhilaration of a huge win. And, you know, the losing sucks, but um, but it's still, you know, it's still an emotion where, you know, as I said, we get done with the game. And it's like, all right, are we going to go have a beer? Or are we going to get something to eat? Or are we just going home? Or, you know, that that's well, really about the do. only feeling that we have. So, right. uh, <laughs> Before I let you go, uh, you, you've been there for the big rivalry, New York, Boston. Uh, for me, when I was playing, even as a guy that wasn't a Red Sox or a Yankee ever, uh, we as players back in those days, we'd watch because it was Sunday night baseball and we enjoyed that rivalry. Uh, American League East this year uh, isn't like that. We got Baltimore at the top, Tampa Bay. Uh, I think Toronto, I don't know, it's Toronto, Seattle, Texas, and Houston. There's four teams, there's three spots. But for, for the Boston and the Yankees really not being a factor, what have you seen from the from the American League East? And give me your crystal ball. How's it going to finish out? I think Tampa Bay's only two or three out. What yeah. are you seeing from those ball clubs? Well, you know, Baltimore, They, I think that's, they're a great story, right? I mean, they were not very good for quite a while. And, uh, you know, to see them uh, doing what they're doing now, they deserve a lot of credit. And I think a lot of people thought, well, you know, last year they were pretty good, but maybe they'll go back down. You know, they actually, it's been exactly the opposite. As you know, they've, they've been even better. So I think they're a great story. Uh, you know, I think they'll probably hang in there. I mean, we, I remember the beginning of the year, everybody thought Tampa Bay may win 130 games the way they were going. Right. You know, they were on this ridiculous pace. And uh, yeah, the Red Sox, you know, I, I think to be honest, Brett, the Red Sox, are you know about what they should be based on the talent right. level you know they think they're a 500 team a game or two over 500 and i'm not surprised by the yankees and i think if your brother winds up taking the fall it's a joke you know to me you know, we talked about the change in the game and speed and stealing bases and you know they're they're just not a, to me a well-constructed team you know it's uh so you know i don't know if he's going to take the blame for it or not but i hope not but and he's made it, you talk about the Red Sox-Yankee rivalry, he's made it a lot harder for me because I never had a hard time, you know, uh, knowing which side of that I was on. And, uh, you know, it's when you, you know, when we're kids, like you described growing up around it, I grew up around it, you know, fans. I, I used to go to every Patriot home game in the crappy old stadium that had a bunch of different names, Schaefer Stadium, Sullivan Stadium. And the Patriots were terrible. Like young people today probably can't even believe that the Patriots, like in the early 1970s, one of the worst teams in the NFL. And I used to cry in the car on the way home. You know, they'd be they'd lose to go to three and ten, and I'm like devastated that they just lost to the Miami Dolphins or whatever it is. So, um, but as you get older, you know, the fan part of you goes away, and it's really the relationships that you have, right? The um, um, and that's what I feel when I watch the Yankees. You know, I, one of the great joys I've had, those 160-some uh, broadcasters I've worked with is working with your brother, and he's a wonderful friend, and I don't want to see him lose. <laughs> you know, so yeah. it's, uh, you know, that's, 
you really you become more a fan of the teams that you you know, you know people who you care about have a relationship with so um anyway it's a long-winded answer but uh it's still a great rivalry you know i'd like to think these two teams aren't going to be down for long you know I, I i think toward the end of the season here we've seen some bright spots in that they both have some young players who look like they're going to be good um and then the red Sox in particular <clears throat> that's kind of been their model since time bloom got here you know there's been a lot of speculation here. Well, they, the ownership brought him here because he came from Tampa Bay and they want the Tampa Bay way, which is give us a really good team that doesn't cost a lot of money to have it, um, which some people here are offended by thinking in a market like this, you shouldn't, you know, you should spend money. And they do spend money. But, you know, Brian Bayo, Tristan Casas, Rafaela just got here now. Uh, he's already kind of made a, a good impression. Jaron Durant had a really nice uh, comeback year after it looked like he kind of might have been overrated. He's not. It's too bad he got hurt. So, you know, I think Heim Bloom and them could say, you know what, this is what we're talking about. We have four or five players now who are going to be an important part of our future. So, uh, but this year they, you know, they're a mediocre team, and and that's about what their record. As Bill Parcells used to say, you are what your record says you are. Yep. Well, Sean McDonough, I appreciate you coming on the Boom Podcast. It's a lot of fun. It's good to catch up and uh well i hope when you reflect keep on doing this what now, you do you keep know, doing what you do one. that was a good one sean that was a good one <laughs> now keep doing what you do to your i don't know how many how many games you got once the boston season ends but i know it's a lot and uh wish you all the best we got to catch up and play golf it's been too long you're uh, way too long yeah and for all of you out there watching or listening to this podcast i appreciate you tuning in we'll see you next time